Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 9th and 10th of July 2022. Film clips played at the live event have been edited out of the podcast. In this session, Australian screenwriter and producer Sean Grant speaks with New Zealand screenwriter Fiona Samuel about his adaptation process, how to choose your next project, and finding your voice as a writer. They touch on his feature films, Snowtown, Berlin Syndrome, and most recently, Nitram, which was the first Australian film to premiere in competition at the Cannes Film Festival in a decade. This session is presented by Script to Screen. Welcome everybody to this conversation with Australian screenwriting legend. <laughs> right here, right now, you heard it, um, Sean Grant. Thank you, Fiona. Who had his first feature screenplay made into a movie in 2010. Mm, yes, and since then has written six feature film screenplays that have actually been made. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah, and, and I should preface that, and a bunch that haven't, I should say. A bunch and a that bunch haven't. that haven't. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. prolific, committed, determined, hang on his every word. It's a pretty incredible strike rate, and it doesn't come from nowhere. Um, there will be three clips that we will watch interspersed through the session because there are three films that we're particularly focusing on. The first is Snowtown, which was Sean's first feature, directed by Justin Kurzel. Uh, but later on, we'll look at and talk about Berlin Syndrome, which was directed by Kate Shortland. And last, but by no means least, we will look at and talk about Nitram, again directed by Justin Kurzel. It was released 2021. Last year. Yeah. yeah, tricky time for a film release. But uh, the lead actor, he carried off the top acting prize at the Cannes Film Festival, and you will see why. So uh, we will be watching those clips and talking about those clips and we will be returning throughout the session to the theme of adaptation because Sean's screenplays are adapted from books about real life events and also uh, the middle one, Berlin Syndrome, from a novel. So he's come at adaptation for the screen by more than one road. Just before we kick off, um, can we do a couple of shows of hands? Can you raise your hand if you are working on a screenplay right now? You're writing a screenplay. That's great. And uh, can I see hands from producers who are looking for um, screenplays <laughs> to turn into movies? I feel like this is speed Ooh, dating now. Not we should quite introduce so them. many. But and writers, you, um, you know that there are only a few of them, so target them madly over lunch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, without further ado, we'll jump in. Um, Sean, the first thing I would like to ask you about is your... Um, is the inciting incident oh, in your life as a screenwriter, because all the manuals tell us that the story kicks off with the inciting incident. So tell us about yours. Um, mine, yeah, very, very clearly remember mine in that uh, I always wanted to be a filmmaker from a very young age. I fell in love with it. I grew up in a, a small country town in Australia, which and my father was a publican and we had a, and a motel rooms out the back and we had a video store attached to it so I was that kid who would work the video store and 
video store geek, pretty um, tried and true formula. But um, when I asked, when I went into to go to college, my mother said, what do you want to be? And I said, a filmmaker. And she said, there's no money in it. Don't be stupid. Um, because she's Scottish and miserable. Um, but uh, but also, also partly accurate sometimes. But uh, so I didn't. I got, a, I got a sensible job and I was a school teacher through uh, much of my 20s. And then this one night was my inciting incident where um, I, I'd, I'd done teaching for eight and a bit years, and it was, I describe it as an itch that had to be scratched. I had to at least try. So I quit my career, went back to film school. And on this night, it was a Friday night, I had uh, put my two-year-old niece to bed. I was babysitting in my brother's home, and the power went out. And uh, I had nothing to do. I couldn't watch a movie. I couldn't watch sport. Um, God forbid I had to read a book. So I lit a candle and I did just that. My brother is uh, six foot six, covered in tattoos and only reads true crime. So it was all serial killers everywhere. Just, And as I tell my American friends, they're winning, by the way. It was 95% Americans. And then there was one book called The Snowtown Murders. And I read that book by candlelight just because the power went out and it changed my life. Uh, I read it... Uh, around chapter five, I recall the opening sentence was something along the lines of Jamie Vlasakis was born December 1979. We, we were a few months apart. And I did that thing in my head like a bad TV movie where if we were swapped at birth <laughs> and, and if I had lived the life Jamie had and he was abused from a very young age by several different people in his community and then met uh, the one man he could trust happened to turned out to be Australia's worst serial killer. And I thought, if, if that was me, would I have killed four people that he did? And the answer scared me. Yeah. And I went, that's an interesting situation to put an audience. So I, um, yeah, I set about writing this film. I knew no one in the industry at all. I wrote it on weekends because I was teaching. I was still part-time teaching, that's right, and I was studying it at the same time. And then I went about cold calling. I watched movies that I liked, Australian films. I wrote down producers' names. I cold called four of them. Um, I think it helped that it, the title was Snowtown and it was an event that they knew. Um, I explained, I'm nobody, but would you read it? And they all did. And they all loved it and said it was amazing work. They all met me for coffee. Three of them said it was too dark for them to spend the next, you know, I think they say it takes about seven years in Australia to get a movie up. Seven years in, I understood that at the time because it had taken a toll on me as well. But one producer said, let's do it. Three years later, we were at Cannes and we'd won an award. And yeah, it, um, that power outage changed my life. I'd probably still be a teacher if it wasn't. I wasn't a big fate guy until then and now I'm a massive fate. Yeah. I think the universe dictates when and where you're supposed to be. Yeah. Um, I mean, the universe may have delivered the power cut, but what I love about this story is what Sean did next. You know, that he optioned the book himself. He wrote the screenplay himself on spec. It's a huge commitment of energy and self-belief, but it, it put you so much on the front foot yeah. because you had something to it's offer crazy. people. Well, it's funny enough, I hadn't... and then. Took me ten years to write another spec script because I was actually I got quite busy. Yeah, and, uh, you get real jobs from you, the spec yeah, scripts. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. always write. Oh yeah, you've, uh, there's something about being paid to write, which is a little bit easier than not. But Knit Ram was my next spec script, 
right. was when I just, I had a break. It was the one Christmas I ever spent. I've lived in Los Angeles a number of years, but I'd always come home for Christmas. But it was the one that my wife and I didn't go home for and I had a period and I just, and I'd had this idea in my head for 10 years and I finally sat down and wrote it. And How long did it take? Your well, you, you'd had it in your head for yeah. 10 years, but um, when you thought, I'm going to do it this It came now. out in a bit of a, a fever dream, to be honest. I think I wrote it in five weeks. Great. And I didn't tell the director that I was writing. When I handed in uh, Snowtown, we're bouncing back and forth, but I, I didn't know Justin. I met him at a meeting. Um, I met with several directors once I'd got a producer on board Snowtown and we connected instantly. And then after developing Snowtown and sort of handing over and the shoot had finished, he was like, I really enjoyed this experience. We should do it again. Is there anything else in that head of yours in this kind of world? And um, the Port Arthur tragedy was something that had stuck with me from the moment it happened. It was, uh, it, it shook my country's core. And I said Port Arthur. I said, I don't know how I can tell it, but if I ever do, I'll let you know. And then 10 years later, yeah, I had this five weeks of just doing it. I never mentioned it. We never spoke about it for a decade. And then I texted Justin and said, check your inbox. And it was there waiting for him. And, and again, very quickly later, we were fortunate to be at Cannes again. So... Um, I should write more spec, shouldn't I, really? <laughs> they seem to be working for yeah, you. Yeah, right. yeah uh, we are, we're jumping backwards and forwards, but that's what film does, so that's sure, fine. That's the beauty of it. But I would like to jump back to Snowtown before we watch the Snowtown clip, which will be the first one that we'll watch, just to ask you about the writing process, because you had that amazing night with the power cut and the book read by candlelight and then you did exactly the right thing which was to option the book because you've got to get the rights if it's somebody else's well, story. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, the journalist isn't here. It's not a great book. Um, and the, the, the finished product, we there was another book on the that we another filmmaker had. In fact, I think during the process of writing it, I heard there were three filmmakers trying to do it. Yeah. Way more established than I. Yeah. But I was just dogged. I was a yeah. dog at a bone and... I always say to writers uh, that ask me, you know, should I do this project, should I do that? And I say to them, because I'm a pessimist, I'm a worst-case scenario kind of guy, and I think if you go, if the worst-case scenario is no one reads it and it goes nowhere and you've still got something out of it and, yeah. and that doesn't scare you, yeah. then do it. If your end result is, if I don't walk a red carpet or get some shiny object in my hand after all of this or make a ton of money, then just don't bother. Yeah. So for me, it was, it, was, it was cathartic for me to write. It was about an absence of a father. My father had passed just before doing it. Um, so I couldn't lose, you know, if you put... And, and that's the only specs I've ever written where I just have to do it. And, you know, and I have written a couple since Knit Round that haven't been made yet, but that's okay because yeah. the experience was enough for me. I got the rights to the book, and you don't need to. You know this, Fiona, about yeah. doing true stories. You can do it yourself and interview all those people. Yep. I was still teaching and studying at the time, and I didn't have a lot of time. I had a little bit more money. Um, so I just thought that journalist had followed the case for three and a half years. If I could, you know, had any questions, I could ring him. So it was more just to have a, yeah. someone to speak to. But I know it's a huge question, but I'll ask it anyway, which is the how the how of writing a screenplay, like, you know, you've got the idea, more than the idea, you've got the story, at mm. least the journalist's version of it, in the book. Yeah. What are your steps from there, from idea slash story, through to 
first draft screenplay? What are the development stages for you? Yeah. And, and anything about your process you think might be helpful to all these writers? Well, I think um, particularly with true stories, first, to me, the most, two most important things when writing anything is point of view and theme or what you're trying to say. So with Snowtown, I got a book, but these books, you know, it was your stock standard true crime, you know, there's a million podcasts now where they just go through the facts. Yeah. You know, and you could do that version and that's fine, but it doesn't resonate with me. I'm all about story and character and, and a character's POV is everything. So I remember Justin got the script delivered to him and it sat on his desk, his bedside table for two and a half weeks and he didn't look at it because he just went, that's impossible. You can't move to make a movie about that subject. It's too grim. It's too all of this. And then when he started reading it, he went, oh, shit, it, he's done it. And the only reason he said that was because of the point of view. It was because you could have done it from the cop's point of view or the serial killers, but it was a corruption of innocent story. It was me going, it was me placing my feet in the shoes of Jamie going, what if that was me? and having an audience do it. So once you've got point of view, Nitram was the same. You know, as I said to before, I knew I wanted to do to talk to Port Arthur as a as a subject, but I didn't know how. And but once I had that point of view, which again came out of a very strange, serendipitous moment of um, me on the couch watching a, a basketball game and these two American sports broadcasters arguing about one said he should have an AR-15 rifle and I don't hurt anyone, so why can't I? And, and two massacres had just happened and I was living in America and I was fed up with it and then I went, that's my point. Of, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you walk in the shoes of someone who should not have weapons for 70, 75, 80 minutes and then you're going to walk into a gun shop and you're going to see how easy it is for them to get it. Um, so it took me 10 years to get that point of view and to yeah. realise because I've tried it from police, I've tried it from victims, I'd even gone as far as writing scenes in different incarnations. But once you've got the POV, once you know exactly whose eyes you're looking through, particularly for film, I've written a bunch of television and television I think is much easier to bounce around POVs. Mm. But for film, I think if you can keep it pretty tight for 90 to 100 minutes, it's, it's easier. So once I've got that, and then what I was trying to say, you know, I was very conscious that with Snowtown, you know, I, in reading about it, you know, what Adelaide did at that time was, there was a very, you know, anyone low socioeconomic sort of situation was just herded up and put, and they were kind of forgotten in the corner and everyone went about their business. And someone like Jamie, you know, a teenage boy could walk, five, ten kilometres every, any direction and not meet someone with a job. Yeah. Like, that's a hopelessness situation. And, and it was actually, it was when the bodies were discovered that Adelaide broke that up. You know, they, they put housing estates in different parts of their city prior to that. So I knew I wanted to look at that. Another thing I do when I write is I have a word, I think I may have stolen this from a Francis Ford Coppola or Kubrick is one of them, which is not a bad person to steal from either of them, but they would write and I write with one word on my wall of my desk that every scene should speak to in some way. And for Snowtown, it was forgotten. Every character in that film has been forgotten by society. So I, once I've got my you know theme and my word and my point of view, then if it's... Uh, an adaptation of a novel or a, 
uh, even if it's a non-fiction or fiction novel, typically what I do, particularly with fiction ones um, like Berlin Syndrome, is I will read it the first time and not take a note. I just feel it. And then once I've felt it, um, if I've got to the end and I feel like I can do something with it, then I, I will reread. Actually, before I reread, once I've read it all the way to the end, I write down moments, and they could be a line, it could be a scene, it could be a character that have stayed with me from, from just remembering them. Yeah. And funny enough, what you'll find, the reason I do that is you can get distracted with taking notes while reading, that you can't feel a, a text. And um, what I find is that every, every film that I've ever adapted, almost all of those first notes are in the finished product because they're the ones that really resonate with you. So once I've done those notes, then I go back and reread and do much more detailed notes. And, and once Do you I... start making an outline in chronological order or do you jump around within the story? Um, I'll take notes and then, yeah, once, once I've read at least two to three times, I, I begin to sort of card things out. So it, I'll make the decision whether it's chronological or whether it's, you know, jumping back and forth in time or sometimes the text itself does that for me. And yeah, when, once I've got enough cards, you know, in my head, it's somewhere between 40 to 60 where I feel like I've got enough scenes to create a film, then then I'll start um, that dreaded treatment, which I'm sure writers here, if you're anything like me, probably don't love writing. Um, but I do it nonetheless. Um, I've been told that I'm very good at first drafts and I think it's only because I take so long to write to start them. That I've just thought it through for so long that I put it off, mainly because I don't want to waste time. I find that if you go, man, you know, you wake up and, you know, you've had a dream. I, I quite often ideas come to me in my dreams. I don't know why that is, but you wake up and you think it's the best thing in the world. And you just <laughs> jump in and you're smashing 50 pages. And then by the end of the week, you're like, oh, that's rubbish. What a waste of time. And when you don't have time to waste, um, and, you know, I'm sure none of us really do. I think it's better to let them marinate. So maybe not 10 years. Nitram was probably a bit longer than you'd want to do. But I keep what I call, I'm a tragic sports fan, so everything comes back to sport. But um, a ladder. I have a ladder of ideas mm. on my computer. And they're kind of in position from first to last. You know, right. you might have 12 or 14 or whatever. And what's been beneficial of working a lot is that I haven't I hadn't been able to get to those ideas. So what you inevitably see is when you first have them, they're right at the top of your ladder and they're like they're the best team going around. And then weeks, months, years pass and they're down the bottom. You're like, oh, that was kind of frivolous. But the ones that stick with you, like Nitram did, like that that what I, I didn't quite know what it was, but it was always up the top. If it's still there after a long period of time, you're like, okay, now I'm going to really spend time on this because yeah. I think it's got legs. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll do the treatment. Treatments, I think, help to try to craft the, the story from beginning to end. However, I hate writing them. So what quite often I do is I'll write a scene. So, um, you know, I may get to the point like the gunshot scene, we'll see later, but... In the, in the treatment, you'll get there and then I was like, I just need... Because I do think it's very hard to tell a story without having the voices of the character. Yeah. So sometimes I'll just stop the treatment or even stop carding. It might even be that early and just write a scene. So I go, I know this. I can do this voice. This voice is in me. I think that's really important. And then when writing the screenplay, I had this discussion with Rob when we spoke um, last week. Uh, he asked me if I bounce around in scenes. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm like, no, I refuse to do that. <laughs> I'm very chronological because I think I know I will go to the easier scenes to write. Yeah. And I will put off the harder ones. So I'm very particular in going in order. If I get there and if it takes me three days of staring at a screen and not writing, I will not skip a scene to go to the easier one. I will continue on. Right. And that's just me because I know I will. And and you just have to do it. So, I'm, uh, yeah, I go very chronologically when writing the screenplay. We're going to watch a clip really soon, but I just want to ask one more question about treatments because, yeah, I think a lot of writers do dread them. I dread them. There may be a lot of people in the room who dread them. Yeah. Um, but it, is that where you nail your story at treatment stage? Like you don't jump into your draft until you've walked through the whole narrative yeah, in your treatment. And here's a really nuts and bolts question. Um, is there a ballpark page length to your treatments? Uh, no, no, there's not necessarily. I mean, some, like if I do a very early one, like a pitch stage when it's, you know, I think they're probably four to five pages, but when I'm really, and that's to go, is this an idea? And I'll show it to people that I respect and they'll go, yeah, there's something in this. And then I'll do a proper one. And my proper ones would go from 17 to 30, like pretty in depth. Not, not that I'm a frustrated novelist, but, you know, I, I do get into the prose quite heavy in that um, sort of version of the treatment. But I always think like, the more work you do, it's just going to make the next part so much easier. Like I lift prose from that and put it in the big part yeah. of my screenplays yeah. and things like that. I'll, I'll write the treatment in final draft. So it's it's there, you know, I'll, I'll put in dialogue passages in it that I can then just sort of cut and paste in. So, yeah, I think the the more work you do early, the easier it will come. And I think that's yeah. when people read a first draft of mine, they're like, oh, shit, that's actually... It's fairly fully formed. Yeah. 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 Good. I'd like to now show the first clip. This is from Snowtown, Sean's first feature. Uh, afterwards, I'll ask him about why he chose the scene and what the scene is doing. But let's just watch it cold. Um, a, a sequence of approximately four to five minutes from Snowtown. You like snow peas? But no animals were harmed in the making of that picture, I might add. Yes, it occurred to me belatedly that I should probably issue trigger warnings. A dog warning, yeah, I did dog love. Quite so I literally for, for all of these clips. That was the first clip. There are two more. Uh, yeah, I, I apologise for not having um, thought that through beforehand. I, I'm mindful we've got a lot of rich material to cover, but before we move on from Snowtown, because we could easily spend the whole session talking about this film, um, why did you show us that scene? Um, when I was asked to come and speak, um, Eloise suggested bringing two or three clips, and um, I thought about which ones to bring, and, and I came to the conclusion that I think what I tend to do when I write is to make sure that there is a scene that personifies your film. That is, if you watch it from start to end of just one scene, it is everything that your film is encapsulated in that one scene. So I thought for people that haven't seen the films, you can just watch a standalone scene. And for that film, you know, in the very first draft, it was an integral moment of the film where I think Mike Nichols 
says there's three types of scenes. And it was something along the lines of seduction, negotiation, and he says fight, I say confrontation. So in each of my, I've got one of each brought along. For me, strangely enough, that's a seduction scene. That is where John wins over Jamie and he crosses to become an acolyte of his. Yeah. It's, it's, it always was an integral scene. It's an uncomfortable, uncomfortable scene to watch, um, but it's one that resonates with people that have seen the film as being that's that moment where it steps about. It's a corruption of innocence film. You see it from that moment. He's nice, you know, to him. He's supportive. It's Green Curry, and then it's then he's challenging. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I could have done a seduction scene from Berlin Syndrome, where there's a cute meet between a couple. It's pretty natural sort of one. I chose not to. I feel like that's a more interesting seduction because that, yeah. that film kind of was that. So, yeah, when you when we see the other scenes, you'll see that they're kind of, I think it's really important. I, I said every scene I s- try to write speaks to that one word. Yeah. But, you know, that that idea, I think Mike Nichols saying everything's a negotiation or a seduction or a confrontation, I think it's maybe stretching a little bit. But I think those really pillar scenes, those integral ones that you have probably are. It's a really interesting lens. I've never heard that before. Right, but, right. Um, it's, it's also a handy segue uh, to get us on to Berlin Syndrome. Um, we won't watch the scene immediately, but we'll get to it fairly soon. Uh, and I'll be interested in, in what kind of, a, you know, which, which of those three headings you would put the Berlin Syndrome scene under. But first, because this was adapted from a novel... Yes. Uh, the movie is directed by Kate Shortland, um, so possibly a female POV and certainly a female protagonist. Mm. What was your process with this novel that made it different from working with a true crime story? Well, I say that, uh, I mean, there's pros and cons to doing an original idea or, or, or one that's already written, but I do think I look at a novel as a great first draft that's already done. If it's a great novel, yeah. <laughs> um, there's shitty ones. Uh, but yeah, that, so I feel like you're a step ahead, which is fantastic. You know, there's a lot of work to be done, obviously, because they're different mediums. But I do think a great novel is a great first draft that's already there. So I actually adapted Berlin Syndrome and another film I did, Jasper Jones, concurrently. Both books landed on my desk in the same week. And I liked them. They were completely different. Jasper Jones is a coming-of-age story about a 13-year-old. Um, and Berlin Syndrome is about a man who locks a woman in his apartment. Um, just so, so you know. Just so you know. Yeah, totally different. But I actually wrote them concurrently and to the point where I think they came out in cinemas like two months apart. But, yeah, with, with a, taking a book, again, I, I read them through. I make all those notes. But it's really about, you know, what's it? trying to say. And for Berlin Syndrome, my word was desperation. It was a desperation. I called it a love story. It's just, yeah, well, well, it's, well it's funny because... Read my body. Well, by, well, by connotation, love stories are a good thing. And I can see a lot of downside to love. I, th- I had had a relationship end um, before going into it. Uh, and people would speak about, oh, you know, there's... These, these happy breakups where it's agreed upon. And I was like, no, that's not mm. in my experience. One person wants to go and the other person wants them to stay. Mm. Now, whenever I do talks like this, you know, and I remember when I was at film school, they're like, write what you know, write what you know. I've never locked a woman up in an apartment, <laughs> let, me be, let me be clear. But <laughs> I have been in a relationship where I wanted my partner to stay. And I, and I say, write what you know thematically 
but then elevate it, particularly mm. if it's cinema. Um, my country had a, a long history of doing, you know, those real kitchen sink dramas where, you know, they're... And, I, and I've seen them from friends and filmmakers that I, that I know well where their first screenplay is essentially their life. Yeah. You know, it's about a guy, some kid growing up in a country town or someone that wants to be a filmer. I will never make a film about a writer. I promise yeah. you this. Quote me on that. I don't wonder what... Well, that's not true. I have watched them and there are some good ones, but that's not what I do. But, yeah, I wanted to look at relationships in some way and... and and I thought, well, rather than just having a, you know, a screenwriter in Melbourne who's, uh, who's getting dumped, essentially, um, <laughs> elevate it. And then this book came across my desk and it was, you know, a, a, a man who, yeah, kept, uh, captures a, a woman and she tries to get out. So if, it's a, if you're going through a, I don't know, you want to do a love story, but don't set it in Auckland, set it on the moon. Or if, you know, if you're dealing with family issues, um, Snowtown. Perfect example. My father had passed, tragically, far too young. I was separate from him for a lot of my years and we were just kind of reuniting in a way. Um, so I wanted to look at a father and son relationship, but I didn't do it in, you know, country Victoria. I said it around the world of Australia's worst serial killer. It just elevates it, but I can speak to the themes that I wanted to speak to. So, yeah, Berlin Syndrome struck me at the right time and... Uh, and I was interested in, I'd never written um, with a female lead before. And I was curious to see if I could do it and how that would work. Um, and I was very fortunate that we had some of Australia's best actresses audition for the role and just love the screenplay and desperately want to be a part of it. And Teresa Palmer played the, the role in the end. And, and yeah, and made, you know, what, what was just a... And it was also a very tight thriller, quite contained. Yeah. We shot it. We, we built the apartment, the interior in Melbourne, but then we shot uh, exteriors in Berlin. Right. Um, so, yeah, and it was quite a... It's, it's more of a conventional thriller than I guess some of my other work. And I was interested in leaning into a genre at the time uh, to do that. Right. Um, we will now watch the second clip from Berlin Syndrome, but before we do, um, you've, you've heard about the content. Um, there's a woman being held in an apartment. There's violence. There's probably sexual content in the clip. I don't think there is. In this oh, okay. Maybe not, but, <laughs> but you know, yeah. it's, it's no heavy. It's an entrapment situation. Um, that's, that's the guts. So um, if if you'd like to step out, um, now's the time to make you move. <laughs> Some people are like, I should have done the social content one next door. Oh, damn it, I picked the wrong one. Purely in the interests of moving along, again, there is so much we could talk about, but we've got one more clip and one more film to go, and it's such a goodie. I don't want you to miss out, and I also don't want to skimp on time for your questions. Um, only for that reason, we will move on to the third film, which is called Nitram. You've heard Sean speak a little about it earlier in this session. This is, is one that um, had been living in his mind for at least 10 years after, after the Port Arthur shootings in Tasmania. The, really the one question I'd like to ask before we watch the clip is about the name 
the name of the film, how you hit on that. And because it, 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 to me, it, it's so interesting and so right. If you could talk about that. Um, well, the title um, comes back to that one word that I had on my wall. So desperation was Berlin syndrome and clearly going back to Mike Nichols, you know, there's three types of scene. That last scene was a confrontation. Um, but for Nitram, the one word I had on my wall when I was writing it um, for those crazy five weeks in Los Angeles was um, identity. To me, it was about identity. It was about a, a, an individual who's floating through life trying to find a place where he fit in. And I wanted to present, like I said, building up to this moment he goes into a gun shop, you'll see this individual try different things, which from all reports he did. He tried surfing and he failed, tried to fill hole, whatever that hole lives in him with travel and it didn't work. And then sadly for all involved, he kind of finds his place in this gun culture. Um, so it was about identity. So I was interested, you know, um, I still harbour some regret, finally, about calling Snowtown Snowtown because... Why? The, well, the murders didn't necessarily happen in Snowtown. They were buried, they were placed in barrels and put in this small town called Snowtown, which gets all this grief as being this, you know, murder capital. And it didn't happen. It happened in the suburbs of Adelaide. Um, but Snowtown, to me, you know, I could have called that film Jamie. It was about Jamie. Snowtown was a small rural town and I grew up in a small rural town and I saw them kind of being forgotten, going back yeah. to that word again. So it was kind of that that town represented Jamie more than that's where the murders took it place. It also for me. sounds like No Town, and there is actually a, a place in New Zealand called No Town. Oh, really? On the right. west coast of the South Island. Well, Snowtown, people were expecting, I don't know, Cuba Gooding Jr. and dog sleds or something. So <laughs> there was some very different, yeah, I remember a classic, uh, there's a really terrible murder in the film, and there was a scene where these, and in a theatre in Melbourne, these old women walk in, and this young man's being strangled to death violently and then there's deathly silence in the audience and one of the women's goes, this isn't, um, what is it? This isn't Water for Elephants, I think, was a <laughs> film coming out with Reese Witherspoon. And uh, no, I actually managed, not. I worked with the director of that and shared that story. He got a good laugh out of it. But um, so for Nitram, the, the title was quite blank for quite some time and then I'd heard, um, I was told, it was actually the producer of the film that mentioned to me, he said, I heard they used to call him Nitram. His name is Martin. Yeah, And Nitram is Martin backwards. Uh, yeah, yeah, which people, some people get to the whole film and don't quite uh, realise. But I think what, what worked for me was, I love that idea that, like, he was this name's been sort of shunted on him, and and, and it was a, a derogatory term that he kind of hated and rebelled against. Uh, it also allowed me not to use the um, killer's name, name, which yeah. uh, you, you people in this country are fully aware that that's kind of how we treat these cases. So yeah, it, it had you know serves a couple of purposes in that regard. Um, so as soon as I heard that story, I was like. That's that's great. Although, you know, people mispronounce the name all the time, which is so fine. <laughs> Don't uh, call it nitro. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and there's a scene in the film where he's kind of, there's a, there's a character that kind of taunts him with the name. Um, and, and, and I, yeah, I thought it said a lot about the character. But, honestly, it was it was just born out of a frustration. Uh, there was a, a gun, sh uh, uh, sorry, a supermarket my wife and I would attend where a, a, a shooter went in and started shooting when, Thankfully, we weren't there, just down the road from where we lived in Los Angeles. And I was just completely fed up of, 
you know, and they would always raise Port Arthur as being, oh, Australia did this and it would be on every, you know, every talk show host would say it and then nothing would come of it. And it was really, really frustrating. So it really came out of this was my anti-gun film, which is funny because I got a lot of flack for giving the voice and the POV to the to the killer himself. But to me, it was the best way to do an anti-gun. Like, I've seen anti-gun films in the past, which are, you know, I don't know, Jessica Chastain at the front of a courtroom, you know, on a soapbox talking about that. And I was like, you don't feel that. But to feel like these individuals. And there was so, you know, in my research on the film, so many similarities between here and at Christchurch and we've just had Texas and they're all just you know, it was kind of similar, which is another reason I like the name Nitram in that it wasn't his name. It was, they're all kind of this, yeah. you know, it could fall to any and you could put Nitram on top of any of these boys. And I use the word boys and not men uh, for an obvious reason. But um, yeah, so that's kind of how I stumbled on that. Yeah. Okay. We're going to watch the clip. There's no overt violence in this clip. Um, it is a negotiation. Mm. That happens in a gun shop. And uh, it's also, you know, it's an absolutely pivotal scene in the film in a tragic way. Um, But it's really worth remembering when you watch it that you've spent 70-odd minutes walking in the footsteps of this character, the title character, Nitram. You spent a lot of time with him, seen him in a lot of situations by the time he he gets to this place. But it it is an absolute turning point and a terrific scene. Really does speak for itself. It's a sobering film. Um, Terrific. Well worth watching. I will now jump to the questions which you've submitted through the app. And uh, we won't have time for all of them, but I'll jump in with a question from Sophie Henderson. What matters more, truth or good story? I, I think I, I speak to trying to find your own truth. So when you make a decision on point of view and what you're trying to say, everything should be about trying to make, get that truth across. Uh, so um, Nitram, perfect example where... It was, okay, I knew what I wanted to do. It was an anti-gun film. It was seen through the point of view of this character's eyes. I needed to direct everything at that. So I'm a big believer in true story. You, you'll get caught up on, you know, that's what documentaries are for. Let them tell all the facts or those non-fiction books that I speak about that have all the time in the world to list them. I think you need to find what you're trying to say, how you're trying to say it, and then that's your truth. That's the writer's truth. So stick to that. So Nitram... was dating a girl and he had a sister as well. I took them out of the film because it only confused this idea of loneliness and isolation. You know, people are lonely and isolated when they're in relationships and whatever else, but it just was periphery stuff that I didn't need or use. To be factually accurate, they should have been there, but it wasn't the truth of the story. So I think once you know what you're trying to say, find your truth and stick to that. Right. is my suggestion. Otherwise, yeah, do documentaries or whatever. It's And it's quite a nuggety little question because it sounds like you go for both truth yeah, and good story. It, exactly. But good story doesn't mean 
documentary truth. Good story means truth in terms of the dramatic essence. Of yeah, what I remember sometimes with something like Snowtown, I remember I would veer off and create stuff and it would tangle me up in knots and I'd realise, going, oh, hang on, what actually happened? And going back to that actually helped me in some regards. Yeah. That, that segues into a question which is in the same kind of territory but slightly different from Will Agnew. When in the midst of writing an adaptation, do the characters ever come to life and speak to you in ways that differ from the source material and how do you approach that? Um, absolutely. Well, I tend to uh, embrace it, really. I mean, I... I um, I forget that I'm adapting. That it's not a, like when I'm doing an, an original story, which I've done a few of, and and an adaptation. I honestly forget that it's an adaptation, and it becomes my story. Uh, and I'm very conscious that I choose things and then place myself in that story, which will change the text to some degree. So, yeah, I'm. Um, I think as long as your your film represents the tone of that novel, then that's all you can ask for. I'm not. I actually make a conscious effort. I don't meet the author until I've done two or three drafts. And it's not to be rude or anything like that. Um, I just don't want them clouding my judgment yeah. and the relationship that I've formed. So, no, I, um, I, yeah, I place myself in it, which then still, you know, and the characters might change. But, yeah, I'm, I'm adapting a novel at the moment into a five-part television series and... I've changed it and I haven't <laughs> I haven't quite a bit in certain sections and I don't know how the author's going to take to it. And I've had, you know, I said I wrote Berlin Syndrome and Jasper back-to-back -back or concurrently. Um, one author loved everything that I did and changed and was really excited and the other <laughs> stopped speaking to me. Um, that's okay, I've got enough friends. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, it's just, you know, I, I try to make the best screenplay I can and if that means changing the text, then I do. Right, cool. I'd like to ask this interesting question from Nadim Wali. How is your relationship with film cliches? Um, oh God, that's an interesting question. It is How an is interesting question. <laughs> I thought it was going to be with directors, but film cliches. No. Um, you've got to know the wheel before you can reinvent the wheel. So I think, you know, I, I've watched so much cinema over my lifetime that I kind of know what the cliche is. And I think it's important that you do. And if you can flip it, I think that's the best best thing you can possibly do. Um, actually, Justin and I have a really good relationship. He's in terms of we've done three films together now. And if I ever do f land on a cliche, it's great to have someone because, you know, you've got a million decisions to make as a writer. It's always easier to read something and give notes. You know, so I, I script edit. It is the easiest job in the world. Everything can be better and can be fixed. Um, but it's the hardest thing to take a blank page and, and start from nothing. And, and Justin's not a writer, but what he does know when I lean into something, he's like, but what if you flip that? What if they did the exact opposite of that? And I try and it yeah, makes it a different thing. So I think knowing it's great, you know, you, it depends. If it's, a, you know, I make, most of my work is, you know, what one might consider art house and I don't have a $100 million budget so I can push the boundaries and flip cliches. And if you've invested $100 million, you might want to lean into them because they're cliches for a reason. People respond to them. So I tend to avoid them, but, you know, that's probably why I'm not as wealthy as I would like to be. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of money, here's a money-related question from Richard Goodwin. 
which is adaptation feels prohibitive for beginning writers because of the cost and legal knowledge required to obtain the rights. Any tips? And because this is exactly what Sean did do as a newbie writer, he is very well qualified to ask this important nuts and bolts question as regards adaptation. So what are your tips for new writers regarding cost and legal knowledge and obtaining yeah, rights? I was, I, I, my first tip would be, I'm not sure how the guild works here, but we have an Australian Writers Guild. When I was studying filmmaking, I joined it very early as like a student member, which isn't much money. We at do. All. I'll, I'll just jump in yeah. because I happen to be the co-president of the New Zealand Writers yeah, Guild. Yeah, there you um, go. We are here to help you with exactly this kind of yeah. question. And if you are an uncredited writer, just starting out, student, um, there is an associate members rate, which is very affordable. So yes, that resource is here for you, and we're on the net. Yeah, I plug guild, guilds all the time, so I'm happy to plug yours. Um, but yeah, I'm in the American Guild, and I'm in the Australian, and with Snowtown, they actually assist me. There was a template contract. I, I didn't have a lawyer. I had just enough money to get the rights, I guess. And uh, Can you remember how much that was? Yeah, I, I want to say it was It was not much it was because, you know, it wasn't the Da Vinci Code. I mean, there's certain <laughs> books you can get and certain that you can't, but maybe it was $3,000, and yeah. I had three years. And what I liked about it was that it gave me a deadline. I think I embrace deadlines. I think they're really essential that you, I don't think I've ever missed a deadline. Um, I always say that it's not the best it can be, but it's the best it can be on that day. So just to deliver it and then, you know, it's a, it's a work in pro Like I, I write ADR, I'm writing lines after the film's already been shot. Like it's a continuous process. So just to deliver it. But yeah, in, like it's harder, definitely. I think, and nowadays, you know, when I started, 12 years ago or whatever, um, it was easier. Now there's so much content that things are being bought at manuscript sort of levels. So it, it is trickier to get. You've got to find something that's a little more obscure. As I said, uh, the book that I actually wanted was already gone. So I got a, I would say, a lesser of the book. But that's okay because I thought I could bring enough to it that would make it worth my while. But yeah, that's a fair question. Yeah, it is a really good question because basically if you're basing your screenplay on somebody else's material, you, you can't just go ahead. It is a, a, a crucial issue to sort from the go. And because Sean sorted it right at the beginning, it, it started his whole career. There is so much more we could talk about, but we are in our final 47 seconds and counting down. So thank you for your rapt attention and thank you, Sean, for sharing so many thoughts and insights with us. Thank you. Check out these films. They really are terrific. Thank you for being here. Thank you. The Big Screen Symposium 2022 is brought to you by Script to Screen. We are grateful to our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, AUT, Images and Sound, and Te Mangai Paho. Voiceover is by me, Anna Corbett, and music by Poddington Bear.